Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. We are a non-profit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This presentation and many others are available through our online library at instituteofcatholicculture.org and on our ICC app. Whether you are looking for weekly Bible studies, in-depth courses, or talks related to the faith, you will find it at the ICC. Please check out our upcoming schedule of live online events and engage with us on social media. All are welcome to join our growing international ICC family. For handouts, links, and further study materials, please visit this program's page on our website or app. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, the treasury of blessings and the giver of life. Come and dwell within us, cleanse us of all stain and save our souls, O good one. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Our speaker this evening is an acclaimed scholar of arts and letters, an experienced educator, and an insightful cultural critic. Dr. Anthony Esselin is a prolific author with over 1,500 articles in both scholarly and general interest journals. A senior editor of Touchstone, a journal of mere Christianity, and Chronicles magazine, Dr. Esselin is known for his elegant essays on the faith and his clear social commentaries. His articles appear regularly in Crisis Magazine, First Things, Inside the Vatican, Public Discourse, The Catholic Thing, and Magnificat, among others. The author of uh, dozens of books, I've, I've stopped keeping track, he's very prolific. Dr. Esselin is known very well for his acclaimed three-volume verse translation of Dante's Divine Comedy, his, his own book-length sacred poem, The Hundredfold, Songs for the Lord, is a unified poem composed of original lyrics, dramatic monologues, and uh, and his own hymns. His latest book is a new translation of Augustine's Confessions, which we are excited to be studying here at the ICC uh, next year. Uh, so stay tuned for that one. We'll be reading it together. Professor Esselin is a frequent speaker at colleges and at church and civic institutions and he currently serves as the Distinguished Professor of Humanities at Thales College in Wake Forest, North Carolina. Uh, after this evening, if you want more from Dr. Esselin, of course, come back uh, next Tuesday, uh, but also feel free to visit his online magazine, Word and Song, at anthonyesselin.com. It is a great honor to welcome back to the Institute for uh, another fascinating series, Dr. Anthony Esselin. Thanks, everybody. Okay. So um, I'm, I'm really glad to be back here. Uh, there's so much here, I can't get to everything, so don't blame me if I don't. I have three points to make, okay? Three points is plenty. Three points are plenty for uh, a 50 to 60-minute lecture. Um, when I read Gilgamesh, I am struck by uh, the many... Uh, you might say chance similarities almost uh, between it and Genesis. I'm more struck by what seems to be the sacred author's deliberate, okay, uh, refutation of the uh, current myths of the peoples 
in the Near East. Okay, and it's amazing. I think uh, just uh, shocking how different Genesis is from Gilgamesh. Now, I I admire the Gilgamesh epic very much. He would. I sent around a, a, a sent around a link to the text. We don't really know um, what the finished poem looked like. We've got fragments. Sometimes they take a fragment from a, a stone over here and bring it together with a stone from 500 years later over there, just trying to cobble together what must have been this um, poem. It is a Sumerian slash Babylonian uh, work. The, the Sumerian uh, Empire taken over the Tigris and the Euphrates River valleys in the third millennium BC. And um, uh, I want to say a little bit about the geography there before I get to the, the first point, my main point, which is this, as it seems to me, is this epic is centrally about cities, the city. Uh, Uruk, which is memorialized here, both at the beginning of the poem and at the end, all right? Cities and civilization, that is very different from anything that we find in Genesis, okay? I think it's important uh, in, a, in a human sense, but um, it's, it's very different. And, and it's predictable, I think, that it should be so. The Tigris and the Euphrates rivers were not like the Nile. Uh, the Nile... The Nile floods gently, generally, and uh, regularly. Uh, sometimes it floods a lot, and then you get really, really good harvests. Uh, sometimes it doesn't flood very much, and you get some years of short harvests and famine. Okay, uh, but there was there was very little that the Egyptians needed to do to cultivate the soil. The Nile was very fertile; it overspread its banks. When it receded uh, in the spring, you would just cast the seed broadside, okay? The Tigris and the Euphrates River valleys, uh, those rivers are not like that. They, they are subject, they were subject to disastrous floods. Um, they, uh, uh, the, 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 they were, it's rich land between the rivers, or it used to be very rich land between the rivers, but uh, human life was... Well, um, it was full of danger, okay? Uh, another thing about the, the, the river valleys is that the, the slope, once you hit the middle range of the Tigris and Euphrates, the slope from there um, to the, their uh, mouth in the Persian Gulf is extremely small, okay? Um, and that meant that if you were going to use the rivers for any, uh, um, to their if you're going to make best use of the waters from the rivers to irrigate the lands round about, um, you couldn't just do it in one little local place. Uh, the waters were not reliable. They might back up, okay? Um, they're not, uh, you, you could get a sand bank and backflow against you. There's all kinds of logistical problems that made it necessary if the Tigris and Euphrates were really to provide irrigation for farmland, made it necessary for an empire to take over um, from the mid-range of the rivers at least all the way to the mouth, okay? 
Uh, and that meant armies. It meant corps of engineers. And that meant hierarchies. Okay. It meant priestly class, uh, because this was all bound up with their religion, too. Um, you had to have emissaries from central government, right? So it meant certain kind of bureaucracy. Uh, this is unthinkable without a large city, okay? None of it's possible, okay? And that's why, it, it, I don't know if you got to it, uh, I, I said it was, you know, optional. But if you did get to that poem about creation, the Enuma Elish, um, the chief god there, the one, not the chief god in the making of things, or you know, the god, the chief god in the sky, uh, or the god of the sea, goddess of the sea, and all that. But the 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 god who actually leads a, a team of gods against the evil female, the sea goddess Tiamat, and uh, kills her, and um, uses her dismembered limbs to create the physical universe. That god, Marduk, is the city god of uh, Babylon. Or, or of, of, um, I can't remember the city. But it, it's basically uh, the chief city god, okay? Chief Babylonian city god. And uh, so the idea is that the, uh, these gods who were always fighting amongst themselves and uh, were not necessarily good, some of them were quite wicked, uh, they form a team under the leadership of this protective god of Babylon, uh, the, the city and empire. And he becomes, so to speak, the Zeus of, of that whole system, right? We get nothing like this in, uh, uh, in Genesis, absolutely nothing. Um, the first mention of a city in Genesis... Uh, I, I can uh, point you to it. It's when uh, it's it's in chapter four of Genesis when Cain. You don't have to go there because I'm going to uh, back up a little bit here. But it, it's when Cain uh, is driven out of the place where Adam and Eve are living east of Eden um, uh, after after the fall. Cain is driven out, and he founds he builds a city. And uh, he names it after his son. I don't think this is accidental. The, the city here, the first city mentioned in Genesis, is a city founded by the first murderer of his brother. Okay? First homicide, first fratricide. Uh, and a man whose sacrifice was not acceptable to God. Uh, a man with blood in his hands and in his head. Um, he's the first founder of a city. Uh, the 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 next city we hear of i uh, is is this city and its tower um babel okay um the tower of babel and then come sodom and gomorrah the cities of the plains uh so the the, the genesis author uh is is undermining uh all the systems around him that set up some human city favored by the gods as the pinnacle of human glory right it's not here 
but it is there in 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 Gilgamesh, uh, and I don't mean to make fun of it or anything like that. I think it's very important um, in, in a human sense. So this tablet tablet one. Let me just read a little bit of this here. He who has seen everything, I will make known to the lands. I will teach about him who experienced all things alike. By the way, there's nobody like this in in the Old Testament. Somebody, a human being, actually he's a two thirds God, one third human, but raised to the a demi God, raised to the level of divinity uh, because he saw everything and knew everything. Nothing like it in uh, the Old Testament. Anu granted him the totality of knowledge of all. He saw the secret, discovered the hidden. He brought information of the time before the flood. He went on a distant journey, pushing himself to exhaustion, but then was brought to peace. He carved on a stone stella all of his toils and built the wall of Uruk Haven, the wall of the sacred Ayana Temple, the holy sanctuary. Look at its wall, which gleams like copper. Inspect its inner wall, the likes of which no one can equal. Take hold of the threshold stone. It dates from ancient times, right? Go up on the wall of Aruk and walk around, examine its foundation, inspect its brickwork thoroughly. Is not the brick structure made of kiln-fired brick? Did not the seven sages lay out its plans? Okay. It begins with a look at the city with a very strong emphasis on the walls, and it will end the same way, okay? And I don't think this is decoration. I think that the whole epic is centrally about this new thing in human existence called a city, okay? Uh, cultures, you find them wherever you find human beings, okay? But a civilization is something a little bit different, uh, more complicated, uh, it requires cities, division of labor, uh, uh, a, a standing government with a standing army, priestly class, different people performing different functions. And if you're in the ancient world, maybe even in the present world, you, you have to have uh, a large surplus of high quality storable food. That is to say, dry grain, okay, to permit uh, a majority of your people, uh, or at least a decent percentage of your people, not to be in the business of providing food, okay, so that they can do other things. But with the, your full granaries of dry grain that's storable, right, uh, you are a sitting duck for marauders. So a city requires a wall. Those walls are not for decoration. They are for defense. And um, those the, we, we imply armies. Okay. Um, every, everything that uh, is both glorious and crushingly disappointing about fallen man can be represented by, I think, those city walls why you would need a wall in the first place because people are bad or people get hungry and they want to take what you've worked for. Um, they want to take it. They'll be raiding your granaries to be wanting to take you. You need the walls, but there it is. It's the, like the highest achievement of man is the building of a city. And it begins and ends with that. Okay. Um, 
It's the city that's set off against the uh, idyllic life that Enkidu lives, right? Let me go on with this point a little bit more. So when the poem begins, we've got, uh, we've got two major figures that we focus on. One is Gilgamesh himself. He is the king of Uruk, okay? And yet he is, in some ways, not quite what we would call civilized, all right? He does have an army, they have a city, they have walls, they have temples, but he's arrogant. Um, he won't leave the sons of his people alone, but always drags them off into war, into battle, and he won't leave the girls alone. Um, and it's especially true of new brides. Uh, Gilgamesh won't let the bridegroom get to the bride first. He comes first. He gets there first. Now, the people don't like this. Um, the people appreciate him, right? He's not thoroughly wicked. Uh, he's very effective. But in some ways, he's not quite what we would call civilized, all right? Uh, he's, he, he, he's got a bit of a problem. Um, so they say a prayer, right? And they beg the gods. And this brings me to my second point, um, which is that uh, uh, the two main figures at the beginning of the, it, it, in the poem itself, the two main figures, Gilgamesh and Enkidu, um, they seem to me to personify uh, two ways of not being quite human, okay? Um, and the tension at the beginning of the poem and then in the middle of the poem is in making it so that these two, with their uh, great power, can actually do things that benefit the common good, right? Uh, Gilgamesh will be a good king, and Kidu will be his good advisor, his, his good friend. Um, we have in Genesis the problem of the fall of man. We have in Gilgamesh the problem that man is not quite civilized. That's a different problem, right? Um, there's no sense in Gilgamesh, that, uh, in the epic, in the poem, that Gilgamesh, the person, the king, uh, has to worry about his sins, okay? There's no, no sense of that. But there is a sense that um, if he's to be the best king possible, he's got to be changed, okay? Uh, he's, in fact, what we would call civilized, got to become more civilized. Um, he is man as demigod and therefore arrogant. But Enkidu, see, they, they pray to the gods and uh, the gods, we will fashion for Gilgamesh, not a helper or a helpmeet such as we find in Genesis, right? It is not good for the man to be alone. Um, and God takes rib from Adam's side, fashions Eve. What we got here is we got to get somebody who can stand up against Gilgamesh, that is, the friend, okay? This is, um, this is a myth of masculine friendship. That's it's not there in Genesis either, okay? Enkidu... Uh, at at, at uh, the beginning of the poem, when he is first formed, he is naked. He's intelligent. That is, he's he's got brains, but he, he 
he's 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 subhuman okay he wanders about with the beasts and in fact he's a problem uh not because he's wild and 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 you know he kill you but uh when the wild beasts are trapped by the trapper enkidu comes along and if he sees a beast that's caught in a trap he sets the beast free okay so he he seems to be like this uh this creature this force in the natural world right uh he's at one with the beasts the beasts are not afraid of him and he sets the beast free but that's a problem um the people need to kill the wild animals how else are they going to get clothing right um that's that's an easy source of you know skins uh for for um for robes and uh, the trapper is doing a job not for other trappers he's going to be selling those skins to people in the city right this is part of the city life even though it's not within the walls it's part of the whole thing and enkidu is messing that up uh by being more a beast than a human being just as gilgamesh is making people unhappy because he's more like one of the obnoxious gods than like a human being okay um so we've got to get them together uh now uh you you can't do that though without uh, a change in enkidu because he can't he can't talk he's act, he's acting like an animal a very good and intelligent animal but still how, how just it, you you may remember how it is that we open enkidu's eyes so that he becomes human the beasts run away from him there is no longer now any intimate relationship between enkidu and the natural world that is lost forever he's raised up to be human therefore his intimate connection with the natural world is severed um what do we need enkidu this is creature out there he's he's really he's powerful we can't deal with him and he's setting all the animals free uh how do you deal with him and uh they ask gilgamesh and gilgamesh says well i know how to deal with him uh you got to get a temple prostitute right you got to get a, a a prostitute there's people who say that the sacred author of genesis based his work on something like gilgamesh they've got to be out of their minds based it on it got to be kidding um so we got to get a temple prostitute see we we already got the city okay cities mean priesthoods and temples and uh very typical of any um people who uh, uh are heavy into uh, uh, agriculture right um the idea of a fertility god or fertility goddess and of course fertility gods and goddesses are going to be worshiped with uh, you know rites of fertility um temple prostitution is a common thing and temple prostitutes were kind of high up on the social ladder so you get a temple prostitute and uh says you know open your robe to him and uh let him enjoy your body and when he wakes up from that he won't be a beast anymore all right uh he'll lose a lot of his physical force 
and the animals will run away from him. He'll seem to have no place anymore. He'll be a man. He'll be a human being. Six days and nights, Enkidu lay with the whore. And on the seventh day, I used to say this myself, on the seventh day he rested. On the seventh day, uh, he, 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 his eyes were opened, and it was a sad moment because he seemed to have lost everything that he knew before. But the harlot said to him, Enkidu, you've now become like one of the gods. I'm going to bring you to Uruk. You will enjoy the friendship of Gilgamesh. Wait till you see it. You'll wear fine robes. You'll lie on a fancy couch. There's all kinds of good things to eat. You should see the young men and women in their fancy robes when they go to the temple to worship. You gotta come to the Big Apple. Okay? Uruk, you gotta come to the city. See, your recompense for uh, that loss of the natural bond is the city. Okay? And you will become friends with Gilgamesh. But Gilgamesh is a problem. And uh, Enkidu finds out what Gilgamesh does with the brides. And he says, I'm not going to let that happen. And the crucial moment in uh, the epic is when they fight. Okay. Uh, let me see if I can get uh, to that uh, real quickly here. See, if, if you remember that this poem is about civilization itself and its possibility. Uh, civilization is something new in, in, in the world. Um, then I think that the scene between Gilgamesh and Enkidu, when the, they first see each other, makes sense. Okay? It's just not just something thrown in. Um, it's, it's central to everything. So let me see if I can find it real quick here. This is on page nine of the text that we I linked to, right? Um, he, Enkidu, walked down the street of Uruk mighty. He blocked the way through Uruk the sheepfold. The land of Uruk stood around him. The whole land assembled about him. The populace was thronging around him. The men were clustered about him and kissed his feet as if he were a little baby. Suddenly a handsome young man, uh, there's something missing. For Ishara, the bed of night, marriage is ready. For Gilgamesh is for a god, a counterpart is set up. Enkidu blocked the entry to the marital chamber. You're not getting it. And would not allow Gilgamesh to be brought in. They grappled with each other at the entry to the marital chamber. In the street, they attacked each other, the public square of the land. The doorpost trembled and the wall shook. Okay. And there's uh, a bunch of stuff missing here, but there, there's, this, is, this is the key turn in uh, the first part of the poem, right? The very walls are shaking. Now, walls are not, again, not for decoration, not for mere convenience. There is no such thing as a city without a wall, if the city is in a plane. Because a city without a wall will be run over by the first people who come. The walls are shaking. Doorposts are trembling. They grapple with each other. They're wrestling each other. 
these two immense men are wrestling each other. Gilgamesh bent his knees with his other foot on the ground, his anger abated, and he turned his chest away. Um, we, we're not quite sure what happened. Different scholars interpret different ways. That it, it, What's being described here is that Gilgamesh throws Enkidu. He actually prevails in the wrestling match. But whatever happens, the, the key thing is that Gilgamesh is no longer angry. He's met his match, the friend, the guy you can wrestle with, okay? Um, and uh, your, your enemy, now your friend. After he turned his chest, Enkidu said to Gilgamesh, your mother bore you ever unique. The wild cow of the enclosure, Ninsung, your head is elevated over other men. Enlil has destined you for you the kingship over the people. They kissed each other and became friends. Okay. Um, that's the key relationship in the poem. It is not uh, man and woman. Okay, It's man and man, that is, friend and friend. Okay, Friend and friend uh, to powerful men now uh, with their friendship forged in initial enmity and strife against each other, but now bound together, okay? Uh, they can achieve great things, right? Um, uh, th this is, we're not just, I think, here talking about affection, we're talking about a dynamism, okay? Um, so that the immediate what happens after uh, uh, Gilgamesh and Enkidu um, have that wrestling match. The walls do not fall down. Um, the wrestling match is decided, right? Gilgamesh, I think, does throw Enkidu, but it takes all that he has to do it, and his anger abates. From this point on, we will never hear of Gilgamesh doing something obnoxious to any of his people. It doesn't happen, okay? But also from this point on, Gilgamesh and Enkidu are seen together going out from the city to do something that has implications for their relationship to nature, but also for the their relationship to the city. Okay, uh, it's Gil, Gilgamesh says right away. Gilgamesh gets the idea um, that. Uh, uh, they're going to go to um, the cedar forest and defeat the guardian of the cedars, the giant beast Humbaba. Um, this is on page 10 of the selection, right? Um, and Enkidu is a little bit cautious. Uh, in order to protect the cedar forest, Enlil assigned Humbaba as a terror to human beings. Umbaba's roar is a flood, his mouth is fire, and his breath is death, etc. Right? Um, but the, the, it's, Gil, it's Gilgamesh who prevails, and the two go forth to defeat Humbaba, the guardian of the cedar forest. Now, you say, well, all right, well, that's fine. And they will. It, it's, it's terrifying, right? Uh, it, Gilgamesh has dreams. He's scared of the dreams. Enkidu always interprets the dreams in a favorable way. 
So it's Enkidu egging Gilgamesh on, encouraging him. When Humbaba actually shows up, Enkidu kind of falls back a little bit, but Gilgamesh encourages him on so that one friend is strong in moments where the other friend is is a little bit uh, hesitant, okay? The two kind of work in tandem with Gilgamesh as the leader, right? And uh, they defeat this giant monster, Humbaba, of the Cedar Forest. Now, uh, this too, you think about it, right? What is cedar for? Why why does it have to be cedar? Um, Did anybody go and defeat the guardian of the uh, scrub pines? No, because nobody wants scrub pines. Except for these days, they're they're the studs that you you end up with your your house is built of chalk and sticks. But if, if you really want great temples and palaces, you want good wood, and cedar is the best. It's the costliest wood. Uh, it's a it's a hard and durable wood. It smells good. I mean, there are all kinds of wonderful things to say about cedar especially the cedars that grew in the mountains of uh, the Near East, in Lebanon, the cedars. We're talking about the tree cedar of Lebanon. I don't know if you've ever seen one. They're immense trees. And who knows how tall they they grew in the mountains in those days. Um, You bring them back. It's hundreds of miles from Uruk, to the mountains, which are the sources of the Tigris and the Euphrates. And it's scary to go to the mountains. And they go. Um, it's dark. It's not what you're used to. You've grown up in the plains. Everything's flat. This is dark and mountainous, and it's scary. Um, and there's Humbaba, this giant ogre, guardian of the cedars, and you kill him. Um, in fact, when Humbaba is defeated... And Humbaba pleads for his life and says, I'll work with you, Gilgamesh. I'll work with you, you know. Uh, uh, you want some cedars? I got cedars. So you give them to you wholesale. I give them to you for nothing. I'll work with you. You know, you spare my life. Uh, one hand washes the other. And Enkidu says, don't listen to him, Gilgamesh. Gil, don't listen to him. Kill him right now. Okay. Um, so they defeat this force of nature. And... Um, the, the upshot of it is you get the trees. You get the trees. The gods put the guardian there, but you kill the guardian. You get the trees. And these trees are not for decoration. They're not for fruit. They are for building. Right? They are the cedars. Uh, they come back to Rook. So you see, um, you get that... you. You overcome the uh, initial enmity between between one male human being and another. And through the enmity, right? Because I think the wrestling match is crucial to it all. They don't become fast friends unless they beat each other up first. Okay? If you know what I mean. Uh, I used to ask my students this all the time. I'd say, okay... Uh, I'd have a big class, 150 kids. I say, you, you, I'm talking to the guys here. Do you, did any of you have any friends and your friendship started with that person with a fist fight? And 
the kids start laughing and they, yeah, uh, they raise their hands. Yeah, that was me. Yeah, that was me. Yeah, that was me. Um, there was something to that. And uh, uh, St. Ambrose said also, he says, he, he, we are not to um, we are not to be over concerned with the scraps that schoolboys get into because they're often the source of the closest friendships. Well, it's that enmity which now becomes friendship and is organized and turned outward um, so that uh, we uh, conquer nature, all right, and we bring back goods for the city. This is, this is a myth of civilization. This is how civilization happens, according to the story here. And I think there's a lot to it, right? Now, unfortunately, okay, um, unfortunately, there's something else about human beings that um, not the greatest city in the world will prevent. And uh, that this takes up then the last third of the Gilgamesh epic. Human beings die. Okay. Um, how it happens in, in the epic is 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 interesting too. Uh, don't be uh, don't be fooled. Fertility re religions tend to be rather nasty affairs because um, they are associated with uh, uh, sex and blood. You know, you've got to give more blood to get more blood. It, it's, it's pretty some pretty gruesome things. Um, and uh, sex goddesses in, in the Mediterranean world are notoriously uh, fickle. And um, it, it, you know, Venus, uh, Aphrodite can be very nice. She can also be uh, something else. Um, the uh, Sumerian uh, fertility goddess Ishtar is just terrible. Okay. Um, so, uh, Gilgamesh has slain the, uh, guardian of the forest, Humbaba, and Ishtar goes up to him and says, Gil, um, Gil, I really am impressed with you. Uh, how'd you like to become my lover? I'll give you this, I'll give you that, I'll give you this, I'll give you that. I really like you, Gilgamesh. Um, it's, it's, of course, tempting. Um, uh, Enkidu intervenes as before. And, uh, uh, you know, Gil Gilgamesh, Gilgamesh says, you know, why, why would I do this? Uh, you always turn against your lovers. One, you turn into a, uh, turn into this kind of bird, you know, you turn into that kind of bird, you you, you betray all your lovers. Um, and uh, en Enkidu seconds this and he takes the thigh. I don't know for certain which part of the body of Humbaba it was. Maybe it's a euphemism to say thigh. Okay. Um, I like to think of it as something more likely that you would throw at the goddess of love um, that is near the thigh, you know. Uh, a fastball and right in the side of her face, flings it at her uh, and recounts all of her nasty deeds. Um, at, at which point, uh, uh, see, this is what the gods are like, right? At, at which point Ishtar goes to the sky god, uh, um, 
Anu and says, Daddy, 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 Gilgamesh called me a... And uh, send, down the, send down the bull from heaven and kill him. And uh, Father says, well, you know, Ishtar, you actually are what he said. Uh, but okay. Uh, right? Okay. And they send down the bull of heaven as vengeance. And uh, it's totally unmerited, right? And... and Gilgamesh and Enkidu that kill the bull of heaven, and that requires payment, vengeance. None of this is just, right? And uh, the, so it's decided that one of them is going to have to die, and it's Enkidu. Okay, De death is completely unmerited. Um, he falls ill. He dies. As he's dying, he curses the harlot. Says. May all your teeth fall out, things like that. Uh, may drunks not even go near you because you're a bad breath. Um, may, may this and that awful thing happen to you uh, because you made it so that I would be here. And um, one of the gods says uh, to Enkidu, uh, why are you cursing her? Don't you see what you've gained? Don't you remember You've gained the friendship of Gilgamesh. You got to live in New York City. Okay. Urug. Um, you got to wear nice clothes. You got to eat really good food. And your deeds are going to be memorialized because it'll all be etched in stone. Okay. What more could you ask for? Don't be ungrateful. And Enkidu says, oh, I know you're right. And then he, he, he reverses. He blesses the harlot. Says, you know. Uh, may may a guy two miles away uh, get uh, all excited about about you uh, as he's drawing near you. You know, it, he it, but he dies, and um, Gilgamesh is disconsolate. He 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 reverts somewhat to the status of a pre-civilized, even subhuman being. Tears off the fine clothes puts skins on himself and decides he's going to take another journey far away to Utanapishtim. Utanapishtim the far away because it's said that Utanapishtim, right, is the only man who never died. And he's got the secrets. Okay. And uh, uh, the, the, um, the gods, as it turns out, were annoyed with the human beings. These gods are capricious, just as the events in the skies are, right? Uh, you've got fertile land, but you don't know. You get disastrous storms uh, in this area. You, get, you can get really destructive floods. Again, it's not like the Nile. And so their, their system of gods reflected this reality. And... Um, the human beings were making too much noise. They only created the human beings in the first place because the lesser gods didn't feel like working uh, at the temples to do the proper sacrifices to the greater gods. So, okay, all right, all right, we'll create human beings, let them do it. So the human beings are created as kind of underlings, slaves. They're not made in the image of gods. Okay, They do the work that the lesser gods don't want to do. 
anyway, the human beings were getting uppity and they made a lot of noise. And the gods were annoyed with it. And they said, well, let's just wipe out the human beings. But one of the wiser and more benignant gods, Ea, said, I can't let them get away with this. So he takes Utnapishtim and his family and he smuggles them away. Um, he instructs Utnapishtim to build uh, a boat, build a ship, uh, smuggles them away. And uh, the greater gods only find out about this after the fact. There is this enormous flood. And there are flood memories of a flood all over the Mediterranean world. Okay. As somebody actually told me once that maybe uh, what they're remembering, uh, I don't, I don't, I, I am non-committal about these things, right? Uh, but the Black Sea uh, broke its seawall into the Mediterranean. Um, flooded everything in sight and then finally retreated when when it retreated there is now a connection between black sea and mediterranean i have no idea okay um so uh the uh the the family of nopishan they 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 survive the gods are angry about this um uh the the and as says what the, what's the matter with you? you you decide to kill the whole human race that's crazy uh, you know, uh, that you, you went out of your minds. You went overboard. They said, oh, yeah, I guess we did. Um, but so Utnapishtim lives far away, and he's not going to die. Um, and there's no connection, none whatsoever, between uh, Utnapishtim as a just man and his survival, or any connection between uh, wickedness among the human race and their, uh, and their destruction. It's the gods got annoyed, okay? Um, and uh, Gilgamesh tries to find the secret of uh, life from Utnapishtim. Utnapishtim has no secret of life to give him. Uh, the secret of life is basically what he hears from the divine barmaid, uh, Siduri, who says, look, um, you've got just the best thing is to be satisfied with what you've got, okay? Why are you so sad? Well, it's my friend, my friend, my brother. Um, uh, why should not my heart be wretched? My friend, Enkidu, we joined together. We went up the mountain. We grappled with and killed the bull of heaven. We destroyed Humbaba, my friend whom I love deeply, who went through every hardship with me. Enkidu whom I love deeply. The fate of man has overtaken him, Right? And uh, it's I get it's not here in this version. Um, they didn't include it. Okay. So in one of the versions, she says to him, "Go back home. Go back to your wife and your little child. Eat good food. Drink good drink. Enjoy the city. That's human life. And be satisfied with that. It's not going to change. Just be satisfied with that." And uh, uh, that's there's it. That's 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 presented to us here in the epic as the highest kind of existence for human beings. It's to live in a well-governed city, uh, to enjoy food and drink and lovemaking, to have 
a wife, a husband, right, and, and children, and then to die. And that's all. There's no more. But look, you got New York City. It's something. Uh, think of it when there aren't cities everywhere. When this kind of thing for your area of the world is a new invention, right? Um, I'd like you, because I, I have flagged a lot of things in Genesis in the first six chapters, certainly. Um, and I flagged them because they are, they have connections, that, or the, it's interesting to put them next to what you see in Gilgamesh and how very different the scripture is. Um, and I've looked them all up in Hebrew. And so I flagged them also for really interesting things going on in the original language. Um, the Babylonian that we're talking about here is also a Semitic language. So the languages are cousins. Okay. Um, I was going to ask Dr. Eslin about it uh, at Q&A, but I'll throw this out there right now. When when Enkidu is first described by the, the uh, by the trapper, I think. No, before that, as they're just describing his creation, as with the animals, his thirst was slaked with mere water. So the animals drink water and human beings in, in this civilizational vision drink something else, beer, wine, what have it. It's kind of funny. It says something about, well, it, it's right in line with the, the pinnacle of life in, in this civilization as presented in this epic. Um, so... Uh, before I take a question, I, I want to say uh, just a couple little things very quickly here about the Hebrew text of the first verses of Genesis. Okay, um, To me, Genesis 1-1 strikes like a thunderbolt. Uh, it is not like anything that I have seen from any other culture. Um, it says simply straight out, in the beginning, or at the head of things, Bereshit, bara, and there's the first verb in the Bible. It's the verb create. The verb is common, but never used with any subject other than God. Okay? If you're talking about a human being making things, the verb, typical verb is asa. God also is said to make things, asa, the verb. But this verb is used exclusively for God, okay? In the beginning, God created et hashmayim et ha'aretz, the heavens and the earth. Uh, and you know the rest, right? And the earth was waste and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was stirring above the waters. And God said, and there's a peculiarity about Hebrew um, that it's hard to explain the grammar, but uh, the way it works out in this phrase that this sentence that uh, is translated, let there be light and there was light. It's so terse in the Hebrew. He or we he or it's identical before and after the little conjunction which means and. Yehior, yehior. The first yehior means let there be. The second yehior after the w conjunction means not let there be, but there was. Okay, there is 
There is. It exists. He, he, or, he, or. Like, boom, boom. No process. No taking of any stuff. The mere speaking. He, there be. And any, any Hebrew hearing or reading the text would be able immediately to associate that verb with the very name of God. So the first verb that God utters, the first word that God utters in Genesis is, um, can be considered a form of his own name. And the existence that he confers upon the light is unmediated. It is immediate. Nothing is needed for its production other than the utterance ye, which is intimately related to the very name of God. He or, he or, we are Elohim et haor, and God saw the light, kito. And ki is conjunction, that. Tov is just an adjective, it means good. You don't need a subject and a verb in the Hebrew, in a phrase like that. It was. Don't need it. Kitov. And that, too, expresses as tersely, powerfully, and intimately as possible the relationship between God, who is good, and the first of his creation, which is good. Okay? He confers existence upon it, and that you get in a play on his own name. And then it is said, God saw the light, Kitov. And everybody among the Hebrews would have heard in that phrase, kitov, what they had often sung, what they would sing all the time in hymns in praise of God. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Right? For he is good. There is no he is there. It's simply kitov. So when you, you say, hodula anai kitov, give thanks to the Lord. Hodula anai, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, kitov. That's all. We are Elohim et haor kitov. God saw the light kitov. Boom. Connection. One more thing. Okay. Genesis is absolutely full of these things. Every word counts. Okay. Which is why I get really irritated by translations that aren't as literal as possible. Because there's where the, the poetry is locked in. Um, and God saw that light, that the, the the light that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness, and the light he called day, so it's the first naming, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning, yom had, typically translated, and in, in the best translations too, we get the first day, but that's not what it says. It says one day, and it's not an adjective, it's one, yom had. And had is one. And so now the, the another attribute of God is associated with this whole creation. Being, goodness, and oneness. And every Hebrew would have heard that prayer. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord, thy God is one. Shema Israel, Adonai, Adonai Elohim, Elohim, Echa, 
one, and you shall love the Lord God with all your heart and all your soul, your mind and strength. It's because the Lord God is one that he demands rightfully all from us, right? There is no rabble of gods fighting against each other. There is one God, okay? And that's the first instance of the use of that number one. It's a holy number, right? One. Because the Lord, the Lord your God, ha, one. Not first, just somewhat different word, but one, okay? Then for the other days, it's the second day, not day two, but the second day, the third day, etc. But this is Yom Echad, that one day, one, one day, okay? Um, all this is as uh, mightily opposed to anything that the people who rightly treasured the Gilgamesh epic understood about their gods, um, about the world around them, okay? Uh, this is, this. If, if you read that other stuff and then you read Genesis, especially if you do poke around in the Hebrew, it's like you say, where, where did this come from? And we, of course, believe it came from God. Because human beings in their imaginations do not come up with this. Nowhere else have they done. But here it is. In most unlikely place. Um, anyway, so now I'm uh, I'm ready to take questions here. I didn't want to talk too much, but uh, uh, I thought you would enjoy that. I thought you would like that. Awesome. Yeah, thank you, Doctor. That, that is the good stuff. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Uh, looking forward to part two next week uh, to turn to another source. That'll be a lot of fun. Uh, these, it's funny. I I was just saying to you, Doctor, before we got started, I was saying, man, I haven't read Gilgamesh since since high school. And, and most people probably haven't even heard of it. But um, there's something so fascinating about reaching back into uh, some of these earliest sources and seeing, you know, just considering what what human life and civilization and, and their vision was, but then to tie it into scripture uh, helps make things so alive from comparing and contrasting the different yeah, attitudes. Yeah. You don't oh, even... By the way, they were drinking beer mostly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> not water. And, not water. Well, water is subject to uh, bacteria, but beer is sanitary. The alcohol kills the germs. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, that's funny that you mentioned but They would that. typically drink it from a big tub uh, through reeds. You'd sip it through a reed. <laughs> you get a bunch of guys around a big tub of beer, each with his own straw. Um. <laughs> and thus civilization is born. You know, <laughs> the beer right. drinkers that's sitting right. around the big tub with the various straws. There are actually, if you guys want to see pictures of that, there are... Uh, you know, relief carvings and, and images that de de depict exactly what uh, what Anthony uh, is talking about. Okay, let's jump into questions. Doctor, let's start with uh, this one, because there are quite a few along these lines. Martha asks, if we cannot read the original languages, what is the best, most literal and accurate translation of the Bible that we should use that you would recommend? I know that's a can of worms. Uh, I, I'm going to perhaps shock you, okay? Um, I, I, I think that it, it got some, some spots, right? 
but I think that if you find a copy of the King James Bible with the uh, Deuterocanonical books included, you've got perhaps the most accurate English translation, if not perfect, okay? Uh, I have to say that I probably think it's superior to the RSV, which would be my second choice. Um, though the Douay Reims Bible is very, very high quality, okay? Uh, the RSV is usually pretty, pretty solid. Uh, uh, occasionally, they fall from a, from a, a, a poetic, which would also be most of the time a literal rendering to something more abstract in general. Uh, they don't usually do that, but they sometimes do it. Um, anyway, it, for the more contemporary translations, I think the RSV is the best. Uh, other translations range from uh, acceptable to abominable. Um, and our the, whatever is used for our lectionary, uh, it's got its big problems. Um, I, I will give you an example of this. I'll give you an example of this. Um, um, when, uh, I don't know if the, I think it was in the lectionary, but some of uh, the more recent translations, when Genesis 1, when God says to, um, when God blesses the, the birds and the, the sea beasts, and he says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, right? Um, all, those, uh, all those verbs rhyme because they're all in the same imperative mood. Um, and, you know, it's peru, um, be fruitful, peru. And it's related to the word for fruit, okay? Right? This be fruitful is a perfect translation because it gets across the inner word fruit. So when you've got translators saying be fertile and multiply, and they lose the connection because, gee, I wonder what's going to be a big source of some problems in uh, the succeeding chapters of this book, Genesis. It's fruit right? Um, and to lose that connection is absurd. Uh, and they do the same thing, some of them in the translations in the New Testament, uh, when uh, um, uh, Jesus, in Jesus' parable of the, of the vineyard owner who travels away and, and sends for the produce of his vineyard. And where the heck did that business word come in when it's Greek fruits, and that word has all kinds of associations, okay? And we know that fruits are produce, um, but produce is an abstract commercial word. Um, it doesn't mean everything that fruits means. It doesn't have the same association. Fruit means everything. In that context, fruit means everything that produce means. So just a complete loss of, 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 of meaning there. Anyway, um, the, the contemporary translations do that all the time, and then there's so, sometimes they're just completely out to lunch. Uh, uh, they, they, uh, it's because of politics or some of the evangelical Bibles. They just want to make Jesus sound like a street preacher, a hipster, um, and 
anyway, I can go on about that. One, one, that's not Gilgamesh. So let's take another question. Sorry about that, Peter. Good stuff. No, 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 no. It's all, it's very helpful. Yeah. Uh, I have uh, Becky here with me actually from, from our staff too. She's going to help me go back and forth in here. So Becky, I'll, okay. I'll hand it over to you for the next one. Great. Thank you. Dr. Esselin, um, you had stated at the beginning of your lecture about three points that you were going to bring up to us tonight. Right. And we had a couple people writing in, just wondering if you could list real briefly those three to make sure they've got them in the right order. Okay. Right. For, first, that uh, for this epic, the vision begins and ends with the vision of the city. And it's the city that is the center of concern, ultimately, right? Um, this uh, this is a myth, as I read it, it's a myth about how you can even have a city. And that city is the pinnacle of human achievement. Uh, the second point uh, is that in order to have this uh, city, you've got to solve the problem of uh, uh, a subhuman, a benign but subhuman way of life uh, totally involved in nature, um, personified by Enkidu, and a, a kind of arrogant um, demigod-like human beings trying to be beyond human beings, personified by Gilgamesh. Um, these are problems to solve, and they are reconciled the, the, uh, by the uh, wrestling match and then the bond of friendship um, between Gilgamesh and Enkidu, which is uh, not centered on feelings, but on actions. Um, they go forth uh, shoulder to shoulder, and they defeat Humbaba and bring back the cedars and so forth. The third point was that um, even so, even though they do, do this glorious thing, the human existence is bounded by death, and there is no um, there there is no conquering death. What is best about human existence? gives you a certain measure of, uh, well, to somebody like Gilgamesh, it would give a certain measure of sort of false immortality. That is, you get to be memorialized on a city wall someplace. Okay. Um, but that's it. Okay. Uh, so the, the problem there uh, of, of death is not solved. It is shelved. Okay. Um, you have... It's it that you have to put up with it. That's all. It's what you're given. It's good. Be satisfied with that and don't complain and live your life. Right. Uh, so ultimately it is. Uh, it, it's meant as a triumphant poem. Uh, yet in the end, there is death. Yeah, yeah. What a contrast with with the biblical account. Then I mean, it's. Yeah, yeah, incredible to look at these side by side. Um, thank you, Christina, up here on screen. Go ahead and unmute yourself and jump in. I'm just wondering. I heard once um, in a Catholic class about like we were talking about creation and looking at the two different biblical stories, um, and the professor talked about how the first Genesis um, was almost written as like. It was, I think he said it was like written during the Babylonian exile and kind of as a means of distinguishing the Hebrew people and showing how like their God, the Hebrew God is distinct and different from like the stories presented in Gilgamesh and whatnot. I'm wondering if you have right. any insight to that. Uh, I wish scholars would be much more tentative about such things. Okay. Uh, the fact is 
We don't know uh, when it was written. We don't know if we did know when it was finally put in the written form in which we have it. We don't know where it's, uh, whether that uh, represents something that had been passed down through writing or and or through um, oral traditions, poems, right? And uh, other such that people remember and pass on for centuries. So we don't know, okay? Um, it, I think regardless of whether you've got uh, Hebrews actually in Babylon, um, the people, uh, people 700 years before the captivity um, would have come up against uh, these, these systems of gods, okay? Um, Abraham, for instance, is said to have come from War of the Chaldees. And when, um, uh, when Abraham seeks a wife for Isaac, he sends one of his servants back to Haran um, uh, to, to get it, right? So there's Abraham. This is 1800 BC. This is a millennium before Babylonian captivity, more than a millennium. And there's obviously communication between the, the, the land between the rivers, Mesopotamia, and um, the rest of the, the Near East. Palestine, Canaan, etc., uh, uh, Phoenicia, Egypt, and so on. So, uh, it's one of those things that scholars say that they have no evidence for, but it's plausible. But then, there are all kinds of other things that are possible too, and I got to think that the text is um, uh, it, it, it has elements of real antiquity um so that i i wouldn't want i certainly want, wouldn't want to say it was composed at that time but i i also wouldn't even want to say that uh, uh we know for certain that it was put in ri this written form in that time even if it was uh we think think of it as not as being composed but as as being distilled from other writings and other other songs, okay? Scholars used to think a lot of things about the authorship of uh, otherwise anonymous poems from the Middle Ages, and they don't think those things anymore. They used to think, well, Beowulf had to have several authors. Uh, this other poem, The Dream of the Root, had to have two authors, one who's really good and one who's just a homilist. Um, it said the same thing about the wanderer, the seafarer. Nobody believes that anymore um, because we've been able to see the artistic coherence of the whole. Um, so, so what everybody said uh, in 1910 about these poems is no longer accepted. But, you know, the, all, all the movement in literary studies when it comes to authorship and stuff has been away from assuming multiple authors, uh, you know, and toward a little more humility and saying, you know what, gosh, we, we got one genius here. We got one author. We just didn't understand. Um, I wish that that would get through to biblical scholars because they make claims now about authorship and time, etc., that 
no uh, scholar of medieval poetry would make about a poem that is, uh, you know, otherwise anonymous. It wouldn't dare make it now, uh, but the biblical scholars still do. Um, it it would be best if they just say, you know what, we don't know. We we we'll make our best guess, but we really don't know. Great, thank you, Doctor Eslin. Uh, another question that we have coming in is regarding the relationship between Inkadu and Gilgamesh and asking, was that relationship ultimately beneficial or destructive for Inkadu? Uh, well, as it turns out, he's going to die because of the fickleness and peevishness, the spite, the spitefulness of the gods. But I think it's ultimately meant to be seen by us as uh, beneficial. It's better to be Enkidu, even if he dies relatively young, it's better to be Enkidu who got to live in the Big Apple and to enjoy the friendship of the king and to do great things for the city, okay, and to be remembered. It's better to be that than to be Enkidu, the not-quite-human, living a blissful and ignorant life with the animals. Uh, yeah, I think... Yeah, it's it's all our, our approval is all on the side of of the civilization, and yet look at the cost. Uh, the the poet doesn't say, "Oh, you know, it doesn't cost anything." It's it's tragic in that way, right? It costs. It is. It costs his life. Costs his life. Well, he was going to die anyway, but he's not not, not immortal. But it co it costs him a life rather rather sooner rather than later. You know, um, there's no solution to this. Uh, eat, drink, be merry, enjoy your family, have fun in the city, enjoy the festivals, right? That's all you got. Very different from the psalmists, even before the Jews got the clear idea of immortality. Even before that was clear to them. Uh, it's With the Jews, it's never Oh, Goshihana would be really good. That that would be really that that's would satisfy. Uh, the the psalmists are always reaching for friendship with God, for union with God. One thing I have asked of the Lord, this I seek, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to look upon the beauty of the Lord. Um, the Lord said to my heart, "Seek my face, your face, Lord, I will seek." Wow. Um. Anyway. Uh. Doctor, we'll we'll end with this one because it's kind of a big one. Um, so I'll, I'll I'll give it to you in in one go. Uh, okay. Michael asks, "What are we to make of sexuality as presented in the episode? Oh, the I, scene, how could I? I'm yeah. Italian, and how could the, I have forgotten that? The scene, yeah, because there's the scene of the harlot and Enkidu, which seems to suggest that it's civilizing, diminishing a, a, a raw energy. And that's echoed with the fight between Gil Gilgamesh and Enkidu. It says that they they embraced. Um, but there's no sense of morality. And then I would no. add, so that's what Michael asks. And I would add to that, if you could maybe contrast that with, with. Oh yeah. Genesis. Yeah. Um, in, in Genesis, right. The, the human couple are naked and clearly, uh, they are meant to make love because otherwise, how can you be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth? Okay. Um, that command has to be fulfilled. So, uh, there, there's, no suggestion that they would not be having children. Uh, 
that that God says, just don't touch the fruit of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die the death on the day that you eat thereof, right? Um, they are naked, and the word for naked in Hebrew is very similar to, it's almost, it's, they're almost identical. There's just a little bit of a difference in a vowel. Erum or erom. It's, I can't remember which is which. One of them means naked. The other one means subtle, sneaky, uh, cunning. And that's the word that's used of the serpent. Okay. And the play on words is interesting. The, 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 the human beings are, are naked. They have no cause to hide. They have no reason. They have nothing to hide. Um, but the, the serpent, the, the devil, is already hiding. Okay. So he's Erum, but not Erum. I don't remember which word is which, but he's, he's not naked. He's subtle. He cloaks his intentions. Okay. Um, and it's only after they fall that they become ashamed. Uh, the, the first act of hiding is they're getting the silly fig leaves to make loincloths from. And the second act of hiding is to hide from God. So first they hide from their own eyes. Their eyes are open and they didn't want to see their own nakedness anymore. So it's like a darkness has fallen on them. So they sew the loincloth, they, you know, stitch up the fig leaves. Uh, it's also a way of hiding from each other. And then, of course, they hide from God. Um, it's uh, the first thing that Adam speaks in Scripture is, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, um, for from her man she was taken. So he's already named the beast, but this time we hear the name, okay? Um, and uh, it's an outburst of joy. And of course, they are totally naked. Um, when Adam speaks the second time, he says, I heard your voice in the garden, and I hid because I was naked. And um, the Hebrew text is, gives us the first use of the personal pronoun I. See, Hebrew, like in other languages, you don't need the personal pronouns. They're contained in the verb. But if you want to emphasize the person, yo, we, I, then you put in the pronoun. And it's that's the first use of the pronoun. Uh, the, uh, uh, the, the sexuality there is all messed up. It's it's funny. Enkidu becomes less beast, more human when he has sex, not with wife, but with um, uh, a temple prostitute. OK, uh, that's as citified as you get. Uh, and his eyes are opened and he begins to speak. Um, but. Uh, in, in Genesis, in Genesis, there's this complete relaxation, this complete innocence and frankness uh, about Adam and Eve 
before the fall. After the fall, it's all messed up. And the whole rest of the book of Genesis is a tissue of stories of how begetting um, gets messed up. Right? I, I ask you to consider this, right? Uh, that I mean, as people will say, I just heard it the other day, you know, uh, the story about Sodom and Gomorrah is a story about hospitality. Everything in Genesis is about family matters and things getting messed up, often because of sexual desire of all kinds, right? Uh, and we're supposed to believe that this little slice here, which is flagrantly about uh, sexual action, is really about hospitality? Um, then explain to me its relationship to the incest that happens almost immediately later, uh, when Lot, who was you know, sort of a decent fellow, but not Abraham, uh, says, no, I don't want to go too far away from my old home here. You know, let me just set up here. And the daughters say, nobody, want, nobody wants us. Let's, let's get our father drunk and have, have children by him. And they beget Moabites and Amorites, enemies of the Jews. Um, anyway, uh, in, in Genesis, the, the sexuality of man is pure and innocent and good. And the fall messes it up in, uh, in Gilgamesh. Um, in Gilgamesh, we don't see an actual marriage at all um, or somebody falling in love with a woman. Uh, the, 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 the marriage, so to speak, is the friendship between Gilgamesh and Enkidu. Uh, and the, you know, the, the, the woman, the human woman that we meet, not the barmaid of the gods, uh, or Utnapishtim's wife, I guess I should be human, but otherwise it's the temple harlot. It's the harlot. Yeah, uh, it, it's, it, it fits along with bad interpretations of Genesis that says, oh, you know, it was sex that was the fall. No, it wasn't the fall. It wasn't the fall at all. Um, the fall was disobedience and pride, and it messed up everything in human life, including sex. Um, but in Gilgamesh, it looks like sexual action is what raises you up to, to be uh, human. Um, not a surprise when you've got fertility religions bopping around. That's great. Thank you, Doctor. Yeah, again, so much that's revealed by the contrast of, of neighboring myths. Um, yeah, the idea of well, the the presence of all of sin and righteousness and and its place in the story uh, that we yeah. otherwise probably glossed over because we're so used to these uh, narratives. You know, we've read Genesis a hundred times, but right. I said one more thing before we go. Yeah. Um, if we think about the mythological imagination, there's almost none of it in Genesis. Uh, it, right. You don't. Um, there's this wild, woolly, fervid uh, jungle of personages, actions, things, um, you know, you, you, make the, you make mankind out of the blood of Tiamat's slain consort, Kingu. Let's make the universe, well, let's rip Tiamat to shreds and we'll put a piece of her ear. There's none of that, okay? Uh, God is portrayed in an anthropomorphic way, and he's not, but to, it's... How else can you even say anything about him, okay, except to say he saw, he said, okay? But, you know, it's, it, you wouldn't be surprised to find uh, one of the gods in Gilgamesh snoozing 
or saying, oh, those human beings are making too much noise. I, it's a racket. I can't get any sleep. None of that um, in Genesis at all. It's, it's uh, it, if, 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 if mythological imagination is like naturally growing things, then Gilgamesh is a jungle. And uh, uh, Genesis is as clean as a windswept desert plain because um, it's got more truth and different truth to, to bring. Anyway, I just wanted to get that out there. A light shining in the darkness. Doctor, could you close our session in prayer this evening? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll tell you what. We'll say the eighth psalm which is so closely related to Genesis. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou might still the enemy and the avenger. When I consider thy heavens the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou hast made him little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air and the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. We hope you enjoyed this program from the Institute of Catholic Culture. Remember to download our app and share our online library with friends, co-workers, and family members. To learn more, get involved, and support the Institute's work, visit instituteofcatholicculture.org and visit us on social media.